Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So uh, we have our second shipwreck story in as many weeks. Huzzah! Uh, and the Batavia was not just a shipwreck. It's a shipwreck and a mutiny and also a massacre. So this perfect storm of nautical carnage. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. uh, As you were researching, Tracy would keep sending me these instant messages of like, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Because everything new she would uncover would add another layer of insanity to it. Yeah, it's it it just escalates and escalates. And uh, there are a couple of notes that we're going to just lay out in the beginning. And the first is the names in this episode. So the main cast of characters in the story came from what's now the Netherlands and Belgium. And at this point in history, the Dutch didn't generally use surnames the way most of us are used to today. Uh, Instead of established surnames that were passed down through the family and stayed the same, uh, people had patronymic names, which came from their father's first names. So uh, Adrian Jacobs, who was our ship's skipper, was Jacobs' son, Adrian. Uh, And his father would have been... Jacob, somebody else's son. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then our ship's upper merchant, um, Francisco Pelsert, he was from Antwerp, and he had a more typical uh, family surname that we would expect to see today, which was Pelsert. So for the sake of consistency, we're just going to call everybody the equivalent of what their surname was, because it gets a little confusing. Yeah. The other note is that you may notice as you are listening to this episode and the next one, because the story is so big, it's in two parts. Um, the number of passengers and crew on the boat, these numbers don't seem to quite add up all the time. And this is because as the voyage went on, people were born, other people died. Sometimes crew just went AWOL when the ship would stop to take on supplies somewhere. People would just decide they were done with this mess and they would go (laughs) away. Um, Even the starting number of people on board is not totally clear because there were some last minute no-shows and people who just never reported for duty. So if you're if you're doing the math on this episode and you kind of go, "What this numbers, these don't these don't sync." That is why. So, today's episode is going to be about the first part of the voyage, the shipwreck, uh, and the rescue mission that happened afterward. And then our next episode will be about sort of what happened to the survivors while their bosses were away trying to get help. Ready? Yeah. Okay. So this whole story starts with the Dutch East India Company, or, in Dutch, the Verenigde Oostendische Compagnie. I practiced that. I probably still did not say it perfectly. So we're just going to call them the VOC, which is what that boils down to. So the VOC was dominating trade in the East Indies, which is basically Indonesia and the surrounding islands, in the 17th and 18th centuries. It became this political and commercial powerhouse, and it sent ships from the Netherlands to Asia to buy things like spices and silk, and then to return to Europe to sell them. And the VOC was headquartered in Batavia, which is what's now Jakarta in Indonesia. One of the VOC's ships, which was also called the Batavia, left Tessel, Holland, on its maiden voyage to Batavia in October of 1628. And its cargo included an enormous amount of silver and jewels. The ship also carried materials for a gatehouse, which was to be built at VOC headquarters. In command of the Batavia was the upper merchant, also called the supercargo, and this was a man named Francisco Pelsert. 
And he was one of the most experienced merchants in the Dutch East India Company's fleet. He was also very fond of women and money, and at one point, sort of extraneous to this story, set himself up as a moneylender using company funds while charging people extremely steep interest. This was something that was discovered after the end of the Batavia story, but it kind of clues you in uh, to a little about this man's character. Willing to misappropriate company funds. That's no problem. Right. (laughs) Next in command was the ship's skipper, Adrian Jacobs, uh, who was a sea captain with more than 20 years of experience. And he was in a rather awkward leadership position because in any other nautical context, he would be the one ultimately in charge. However, on a VOC ship, he reported up to the upper merchant, who was a merchant and not a seaman. This is pretty much how things worked uh, in most of the big trading companies. You would have somebody who was ultimately in charge, whose job was to safeguard the financial interests of, of the company. Everyone ultimately reported to this person, even though this person did not necessarily know how to sail a ship. So that led to some headbutting in many contexts, not just this one. I imagine we have um, several listeners at the moment thinking that this is very similar to some corporate cultures. Yeah. Not ours, I'm happy to report. But but it does happen. I mean, I've certainly been in companies where the person in charge doesn't really know how anything works. Yeah. I temped one time for a company uh, where there was somebody who was in charge of IT who had a history degree and they had... Yeah. He'd been hired because he was a people manager, but the people who were working in IT found that very frustrating. Yep. So Jacobs and Pelsert had actually sailed together before, and they had never really gotten along. And their headbutting only got worse after this incident on a voyage where Pelsert was traveling as a guest. Jacobs had gotten extremely drunk and insulted him in a very loud way. And that ship's upper merchant had given Jacobs a really public reprimand and... Jacobs always blamed Pelsert for having gotten him dressed down in front of everybody. Always a good relationship to start a long voyage with. Always good to blame other people <laughs> for your own behavior. Uh, third in command was the undermerchant, Euronymous uh, Cornelis, who had very little experience at sea. And we'll talk a little bit more about his backstory as we go on, because it becomes really, really relevant later on in the tale. Yeah, his his story is uh, is really relevant to part two, so it's in part two of the episode. Gotcha. So, also on board, the Batavia were about 340 other people, and about two-thirds of them were officers and crew of the ship. There are also about 100 soldiers, along with some civilians, seeking passage to the Indies, and some of these were women and children. These were mostly families of VOC employees or other people who were going to join their family in the Indies. And before we talk about... The voyage itself. Shall we take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor? Capital idea. And now we will get back to the journey of the Batavia. The Batavia left Tessel in a convoy of seven ships. But at the very start of the voyage, they went through a huge storm in the North Sea. And most of the ships lost sight of each other. Only three of them managed to find one another again once the weather had improved. The Batavia, Asendelft, and the Buren sailed on together toward South Africa. These three ships made really good time. They got to the Cape of Good Hope an entire month ahead of schedule. But uh, on board the Batavia, the undermerchant Cornelis and the shipper Jacobs started to conspire to commit mutiny. Um, They also drew the ship's high bosun into their plot as well. And so as the ship departed from South Africa... 
Uh, in order to further their plan of mutiny, Jacobs deliberately steered the ship away from the two remaining ones in the convoy, and so the Batavia wound up going on the rest of its journey alone. And then, during the last stretch of the Batavia's route northward through the Indian Ocean, Upper Merchant Pelsert became seriously ill and had to be confined to his cabin under the care of the surgeon Franz Jans. Uh, at this point, Jacobs and Cornelis put their plotting on hold. They were kind of enjoying Pelsert's absence and biding their time and waiting to see if he would just die and leave the ship in their hands. Yeah, they weren't <laughs> sort of an interesting attitude to have about it. <laughs> they weren't going to have to put the effort into staging a mutiny if the, you know, the upper merchant was just going to die. Yeah, take some work. Yeah. So, uh, sadly, thwarting their plans, eventually Pelsert recovered. And when it became clear that he was going to live, Jacobs and Cornelis realized that they had wasted some time in getting their whole mutiny plan off the ground. They hadn't recruited enough men to physically take over the ship from the people who would be loyal to the upper merchant. So they decided to have another ploy. They conspired to have a wealthy female passenger named Lucretia Jans, or you also see her named as uh, Lucretia Vandermillion, which was her husband's last name. Uh, they conspired to have her sexually assaulted by masked members of the crew. And Jans was traveling to Batavia to join her husband, and her station was high enough that she had one of the best cabins on, on the ship and her own maid. And by attacking someone so prominent, they hoped to lure Pelser into punishing those responsible, which they hoped would trigger a revolt among the rest of the skipper's team. It seemed like a sure thing after Jans said she recognized the voice of one of her attackers, and it was the high bosun. What a horrible plan. It was not a good plan in in every possible respect. It was it was not good to to plan to do that in the first place and also on top of that being a terrible thing to do it didn't work. Uh Pelser investigated the incident. He you know, he he accepted her her assessment of who had attacked her. He didn't punish anybody. Part of this is because he was still pretty sick, even though he was now recovering. And he also was starting to suspect that maybe there was something bigger going on and that he should not get involved in it quite yet until he had a better sense of exactly what was happening. Yeah, so he was kind of keeping his cards close to his vest, so to speak. Yeah. Like he didn't want to didn't want to incite the riot that he thought might be coming. No. Uh, but before they could come up with some other ploy to bring the upper merchant down, the mutineer's plan was spectacularly derailed uh, because the ship was wrecked. Yes. Before we tell the story of the wreck, let's take another moment for another word from our sponsor. Now back to our story. On June 4th, 1629, a couple of hours before dawn, Pelsert, who at this point was still not well, he was in his bunk but awake, he felt a, quote, rough, terrible movement, the bumping of the ship's rudder. And then he felt the ship strike rocks so hard that he was knocked out of his bunk uh, because they were not really anticipating that they were suddenly going to run into land. They were traveling at full speed when they struck this reef and huge waves and a bit really heavy wind continued to just pound on the ship and push it harder and harder against the rock. Pelsert ran on deck to see that there were breakers all around them. And according to his journal, he said to Jacobs, Skipper, what have you done that through your reckless carelessness, you have run this noose round our necks? The crew really scrambled to try to lighten the ship. They threw cannons overboard, they felled the masts, and they started sounding the depths to try to find a way that they might be able to work the ship back into deeper water, but it was no use. The ship was stuck 
And on top of that, they really didn't know where they were. This part of the sea was virtually uncharted by Europeans at this point. And on top of all that, when they felled the mainmast of the ship, it came down in a different direction than they were expecting, and it crushed everything in its path on the way down. So their effort to lighten the ship just broke it worse. It was only after some discussion that Pelser and Jacobs decided they must be in the Hootman Abrolos Islands, which is a long chain of islands about 40 kilometers off the western coast of Australia. Their name comes from Portuguese, Abro Ojos, or Open Eyes, and it got its name after the Dutch East India Company vessel Dordrecht stumbled upon them about 10 years earlier. And the crew believed that they were in open ocean, and then suddenly reef and islands were everywhere. And these islands are, as you can imagine, treacherous for ships. Uh, more than 60 vessels are known to have been lost among them. And at this point in history, Europeans had not explored or charted all of this. And they are so far off the coast that they were likely completely unexplored by Australia's Aboriginal peoples as well. So kind of just a big mystery danger sitting out there in the ocean. Yeah, that's why they got that name about keeping your eyes open. Yeah. Uh, there's another collection of islands off the coast of South America with the same name for the same reason, like people venturing into them, believing they were in totally open ocean. And then, whoa, not so much. Islands everywhere. So after the wreck, about 180 people were removed from the ship and taken away in boats. This included about 30 women and children. And about 70 men stayed on board, including under Merchant Cornelis. Most of the survivors made their way to an island, which was later named Beacon Island, while the commander, the captain, and about 40 other men went to an island that was nearer the shipwreck, and that later came to be known as Trader's Island. With the party split up this way, the majority of the survivors, at this point very panicked and in poor health from the length of their journey, uh, were on an island by themselves, and no one was really in charge. Yeah, you had basically civilians and the rank-and-file crew off on an island by themselves with no leadership, no leadership. And uh, on top of that, no supplies. So the men who stayed on board the Batavia, who were overall the seediest and most disreputable of everyone on board, largely amused themselves by drinking, plundering the ship's stores, looting things for themselves and attacking anybody who came to the ship to try to, to salvage supplies from it. Delightful bunch. Uh, the crew did manage to get some provisions off the ship, but it was not enough to sustain them for very long. And these islands were basically barren. There were some birds, there were some fish, and there were some sea lions that they could eat, but almost nothing in the way of water or shelter. So it was more like they were stuck on a big chunk of coral and rock just sticking out of the ocean. And because this larger group of survivors just became more and more desperate as time went on, the officers started to balk at the idea of trying to get supplies from the ship to the island where most of the survivors were. It started to become really risky. Like There was a genuine risk that panicked survivors were going to mob the, the boat and capsize it and possibly destroy the cargo or the boat itself uh, or kill the crew. So after a while, it was sort of like, we're just, we're just not going to mess with them on that island because we're scared of them. Mm-hmm. This is, see, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> I know, it's awful. There are so many just callous and horrible moves made along the way that it, it's, it's hard to, yeah. You don't, there's not really a lot of people to root for. Uh, the officers debated at this point what to do because staying where they were seemed completely hopeless. Once the storms that had driven them into the islands cleared, they didn't have a source of fresh water unless it started raining again. 
uh, and they would need just enough to provide water without threatening their lives. Or, an equally unlikely scenario, if the hull of the ship broke apart and the current happened to carry all of the ship's stores directly to the islands, uh, they might get some relief. So what they did was uh, they decided to start scouting the islands and the mainland for sources of water. So Pelsert, most of the officers, and some crew and passengers, including two women and a baby, went searching for water. This wasn't really Pelsert's idea. He was sort of feeling like at this point it was his job to stay with the survivors and to die with them if that was what happened. Um, his job as upper merchant also involved the the responsibility for making sure the cargo stayed safe. And so he was really reluctant to leave it behind. Like his priority was definitely more on the cargo than the, the people in terms of his job description. But some of the sailors were pretty set on trying to save themselves at whatever cost. And so ultimately he went with them in the ship's longboat. Forty eight total people went to look for water while the rest stayed behind. Pretty much the only senior officer that was not among the scouting party was Euronymous Cornelis, back aboard the Batavia. Their four-day search for water was fruitless. And finally, Pelsert decided that the only possible way that they were going to get out of this mess was to go to Batavia for help. So they took their longboat, which was about 30 feet long, and they crossed 900 nautical miles of the open Indian Ocean. Imagine Australia on a map. So the Hootman Abrolhos Islands are about halfway down the straightish part of the western coast of Australia. Batavia is in Indonesia, and in between them is just this long expanse of the Indian Ocean. And that is what they were crossing. Yes. They're in a long boat. In a long boat. Uh, that had like 10 pairs of oars, I think. <laughs> there are some shipwreck and mutiny survival stories that are, that involve longer ocean crossings in remarkably small craft than this. But still, the fact that there, there were just these, all these people packed in the boat, including two women and a baby, is astounding to me. Yeah. Uh, so, to cut a, this part of the long story short, they made it. It took them 33 days to get there. When they did get there, after 33 days across the ocean open, they had less than two pints of fresh water left. And once they got to Batavia, Pelsert charged the ship's high bosun for outrageous behavior before the wreck, because remember, he was implicated in the sexual assault of a passenger, and he was executed. And Skipper Jacobs was arrested for negligence in causing the wreck. Pelsert gathered supplies and boarded the yacht Sardom, and they headed back to find the survivors. It took them... 63 days to find them again. So basically twice as long. Just months and months of misery. Yeah. So a whole lot happened on the island in this three-month period between when Pelsert left and when he got back with help. And probably survivors didn't even know they were heading out across the Indian Ocean to begin with. They had no idea. So they were just there three months not knowing what was going on. Believing they had been abandoned. Uh, And that is the story that we are going to talk about in the next episode. Uh, because as I discovered as I was researching this crazy story, that they get long and involved. They do. When you're taking a longboat across the Indian Ocean. And when there is a shipwreck and a mutiny and a massacre. Yeah. So we're going to continue the mutiny and massacre part of this story in our next episode. In the meantime, do you have listener mail? I do have some listener mail. Our listener mail is actually two comments from our Facebook page uh, in response to our recent episode about crucifixion yeah. in the uh, in Greece and Rome. 
The first is from Tony, and Tony says, kind of sad that you continue to push the myth that Jesus existed. You admit there is no contemporary accounts for his, quote, life, but revert to the Christo-normative position that he was real. Sad position for, quote, historians. And the other is from Susanna, who says, considering that there's zero evidence outside of the New Testament, which was assembled beginning 115 A.D., of the existence of Christ at all, I find it difficult to buy any allegations that he was crucified. So I responded to both of these on our Facebook page. But this is actually something that you and I talked about when we were recording yeah. whether we should address. Uh, because we talk about Jesus in a couple of places in our episode on crucifixion. We don't really talk about, like, Jesus as a historical figure. Yeah, because that really, I mean, while that we mentioned in the episode, that was is the most famous one everyone knows about. Right. That really wasn't what the episode was about. It was about the practice that was yeah taboo, but still very common. And right. You kind of can't talk about that without at least mentioning yes. the Jesus element. And the general consensus among modern historians is that, they're, that Jesus is a real person who lived. That's pretty much... The, the general consensus of today's scholars of history. Uh, there are some people who debate this idea based on some of the things that these uh, couple of people commented on our Facebook page. Uh, but my point, and the point that I made several times, is that this same exact trait, like there are not, there's not a first person eyewitness account of Jesus written down during his lifetime. Right? Yeah. That is the case for many, many figures in antiquity. Yeah. Um, and, and so if, you're, if your rule for deciding that a person is real, if that's your standard for what you need to have to believe that a person is real, you're discounting many, many historical figures from Greece and Rome. You're also discounting the entire histories of cultures that kept their histories orally rather than writing them down. Yeah, that often were written down by later culture when they either had it relayed to them or discovered some element of of that culture. So you can't kind of erase anything just because there's not a first-person contemporary account for it. So if you would like to write to us on this or any other topic, you can. We're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. Our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash mistinhistory, and we have our very own website now at www.mistinhistory.com. If you would like to learn a little more about one of the things we talked about in this episode, come to our website, our other website, howstuffworks.com. Put how to survive a shipwreck into the search bar, and you will find how to survive a shipwreck. Very helpful to read in advance before you get on the ship. Just to put you out there. Be safe. Uh, you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This April, monsters do exist in this life. Animal Planet's River Monsters returns with an all-new season. The Amazon, the one place whose mysteries keep calling me back. Here, I've seen many monsters. Those teeth! But I've yet to see. There it is, there it is. My last. River Monsters, Sunday nights at 9, starting April 6th. Animal Planet, surprisingly human.